Well, hey there, and welcome to this episode, very special episode of the Enough Variety podcast. This is the place where we empower consultants and coaches to forge their own path to success in their careers and their lives. And I am thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to have Simon Bailey on the show today. He is a former Disney colleague, which we have not connected in a long time. And I'm excited to have him on the show to talk about the journey from going from Disney into business ownership, his whole entrepreneurial journey, journey as a speaker, as an author. We're going to talk about his latest amazing book, and I can't wait to hear all about it. So welcome to the show, Simon. Thank you for having me. So good to see you, friend. <laughs> it's been a long time. The last time I remember seeing you was at like feature animation building, like back at Disney. Yes. So before we get into all the amazing things that you've done with your business, can you like, let's go back in time. Like, tell me, remind me again about your job at Disney and how you went from Disney to starting your own business. Wow. So four different jobs in seven years um, from parking events, sales to Disney's White World of Sports, selling the Braves when they did spring training uh, at Disney's White World of Sports, and then handling international wholesale uh, responsible for Brazil, Asia Pacific and Europe. And then my last job was sales director for the Disney Institute. So uh -huh. I, and, yeah, and you remember what happened. I don't know if you remember or not, but I got a call from a journalist one day. And at Disney, you know, you never talk to the media. And he says, where do you see yourself 10 to 15 years from now? And I said, I see myself as the president and CEO of the Walt Disney World Resort and eventually the chairman and CEO of the Walt Disney Company. And he puts us in print. So oh. the article comes out page 12, Florida Business Trend Magazine, February 2002. And I was reporting to Larry Lynch at the time. And he says, what the heck were you thinking when you did this interview? And wait, Betsy, it gets better. The Mickey Mouse topiary is behind my picture in the article. So branding had an out-of-body experience. So HR showed up and they asked me to sign a piece of paper that went into my personnel file. And let's just say they didn't fire me that day. But about a year later, I heard the footsteps coming and they were not singing. It's a small world after all. Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, you got to appreciate the ambition, yes. you know, like they tell you dream, dream big, dream, big dreams, you know, <laughs> a dream is a wish your heart makes. I mean, well, yes. obviously, that's not the dream of your heart. But anywho, so then so how did you go from the parks and then um, the sports and rec and the operations area to the Disney Institute? So one of the leaders, uh, uh, Tim, um, who I am forever grateful for, just a wonderful person. He was heading up all parks and resorts and they had an opening for a sales director. And he said, did I want to move over there? And Larry had noticed me and said, hey, we've got a spot over here at the Disney Institute. We'd love to have you. So I said, yes, ended up taking that role and I fell in love with it. And Disney sent me to Paris to design a, a program for a thousand liters out of Barclays Bank out of London. And while I was there in Paris, I had the epiphany because Lion King had just come out. And I'm there delivering this program. And I said, remember who you are. You are more than what you've become. <laughs> and it hit me. Oh, my goodness. The money's in content. So I said, okay. I'm going to create a plan to exit Disney because I'm not staying because I got to figure out how to create content. And so I, I left and went out on my own. So what year was that when you that decided to go? 2003. Wow. So 20 wow, years. Wow, wow. <laughs> so 
so for you, the epiphany wasn't like, like, cause a lot of people who leave like a corporate job is like, I want more control over my career. I want to be able to have freedom and all of that. But for you, there was like a vision around content. Like I want to create content and content is my pathway out. Like, was it just like, sort of like, an aha, like you had an epiphany, like that was it. Or did something resonate? Like, okay, I saw what Disney's all about with content. Cause that's an unusual path to begin with content. So there were three things that I, that I noticed. A ton of companies were coming to Disney Institute to say, we want to learn Disney's approach to service and leadership and marketing. And a lot of them we had to turn away because they couldn't afford it. And, and you know, okay, great. So for every Coke, there's a Pepsi. For every McDonald's, there's a Burger King. I said, huh, we're turning them away. The second thing I noticed is when I was in Paris, I love teaching and sharing and then coaching on the side with companies say, hey, how do we implement this? So I made note to self. And then the third thing I realized is that, uh, and I love Disney, great company, but how I was wired, I realized that I had settled for a chair, a check and a cup of coffee in Cubicle Farm. And I woke up and I said, you know what? This is not me. And I need to figure out how to get out of here because if not, I'm just going to kind of hang out. And you know, uh, conformity robs you of creativity. And I mm -hmm. am a nonconformist. So <laughs> I awesome. know that about myself. <laughs> so, so, yeah. You know, I, I've kept in touch with a lot of former Disney people and a lot of the Disney Institute people wind up like leaving and they talk about the Disney principles and it's all about the Disney, the Disney, the Disney. And what I've always noticed and appreciated about you is you didn't like try to ride that much on the Disney coattails. Like you forged your own body of work, like talking about shifting your brilliance and all those other things. Like how did you what what made you decide compared to a lot of other Disney Institute people who wanted to ride the coattails? What made you decide like, no, I'm going to come up with my own content and build my own thought leadership completely separate from my Disney, my so, you know, not riding on the Disney brand? Yeah, I went out and studied some of the business models of Stephen Covey, John Maxwell, Dale Carnegie. And what I realized is that I am not in the speaking business, I'm in the content distribution business. So in 20 years, I have reinvented six times. And with each uh, reinvention, I said, I need my own proprietary intellectual property. So it started with brilliance and, and brilliance has probably been for 15 years, what I've talked about. And then from brilliance, we've gone into spark. Uh, so how do you spark brilliance? And so here's the cool thing, which a lot of people don't know. Uh, DL, which stands for Debbie Lynn, was an instructional designer at Disney University. She designed a ton of the programs when Judson Green was president, uh, leader, leadership pathways that rolled mm -hmm. out back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Well, she left Disney around the same time, and I hired her as an instructional designer. So <gasps> over about wow. a 10 to 15 year period, I invested almost a half a million to a million dollars just in developing content because I quickly realized it's in content. And so that's what we did. And uh, here we are 20 years, still having fun. Still feels like day one. <laughs> can, you, can you say that quote again about the, um, that you're not in the speaking business, but you're in the content. What was the word? Yeah. I didn't miss that. So I'm not in the speaking business. I'm in the content distribution business. Content distribution business. That's brilliant. Yeah. So you speak, you coach, you write books, you have online courses, you license content, and it's just no stopping of what you can do with content. So create it once, but how does it create seven or eight other revenue streams? Yeah, that's brilliant. 
you know, some, that's one of the things that I realized, like, as I've been evaluating my body of work, it's like, I got body of work everywhere, but it's like taking that one piece and going all the way through, like, that's where it's a different kind of strategic mindset that you had from the get go. That seems like a huge gift. Yeah, it's been a fun journey and uh, we're getting ready to roll out a whole new uh, iteration. We're on uh, in reinvention number six uh, in this chat GPT world that we're in now. <laughs> I so love chat GPT. I just <laughs> talked about it. And I was a guest on somebody else's podcast and they're like, what's the new stuff? I'm like, my new obsession. I love chat GPT. It's so fun. It's like I have my own little junior copywriter and it does whatever <laughs> I want it to do. And that's and so the best true. thing about chat GPT that's better than a junior copywriter is the response is always like, sure, I could do that. I'm like, huh, I like that. Thank you. You're so kind. I like your, I like your can do attitude, chat GPT. <laughs> so, so okay. So tell me about your big idea. So you, I, I'm with you on the whole reinvention thing. This is why I'm such a huge proponent with, um, with all my clients. When we go through the brand messaging program, they're all like, Hey, what should I name my business? I'm like your name. Because if you imagine yourself growing over time, like you're never going to be stuck in one thing if you're a growth-oriented person, but yes. there must be some thematic things to your, well, at least in going through some of the stuff, like I spent a lot of time in your content getting ready. There's some thematic things when I look at your content. Um, faith seems to be a big theme for you. Purpose-driven seems to be another thing that's about you. Something about like, you know, being being the best of who you are or being in your potential. Like those are three of the themes. I don't know if I'm hearing the themes that are consistent yes. throughout all of your content. Yes. You, you hit it right on the head. So where the world is going, let me anchor it with some research first, and then I'll tell you kind of where the shift is. So according to Gallup, after surveying in 190 countries and the 22 global workforce study report, the corporate imperative is well-being because roughly seven out of 10 people are stressed out in the workplace dealing with anxiety, depression. So people are showing up either working from home, hybrid or in person, and they're dealing with a lot of stuff because of everything that's happened in the last few years. So where things are shifting to is executives and leaders have to focus on whole person leadership. It is the marrying of head and heart in order to engage hands so that the feet can follow. Mm -hmm. And if we are not focusing on helping the whole person, you will have more quiet quitting or what they're calling quiet firing. And you will not get the best of people. You'll only get a part of them because what people have done over the last couple of years, they have reevaluated their life. And they're like, this is not a dress rehearsal. I don't get a do-over. I'm going to make the most of my life. And if I'm in an environment where I am tolerated rather than celebrated, I'm out. So organizations have got to say, how do we help a person be well while they work and live a whole life? So I can imagine everybody who, so the people who I attract on my, to my tribe and my, my podcasts are purpose-driven consultants, coaches, you know, at, and I, like those kind of people like you. And I know that when they're hearing you say that, they're like, yes, that's what I've been saying all along. I've been saying that all along, but you've been writing about this all along. 
You know, like this is not like what the research is saying is not like, oh, yeah, like, oh, I didn't know. Now, like Simon has to change his direction. You are always like that. Like, where does this come from? Like, where the, where do these big ideas come from? Like, it, does it germinate out of your story? Is it just just strictly from your faith? Like, where does it the where does this conviction that you've always had that the world is catching up with? Where does that come from? I realized I was a broken man and I was a broken leader. I was a broken husband. And when I stopped being an annoying echo and chose to be an original voice, that's when I took the mask off. And so my writing over 20 years has been therapeutic because I was trying to find my own healing within myself. <laughs> and so I've written from this place of I was always taught to be a certain way, but I never found my voice. And so my writing has been healing for me. And so now when I teach or coach or write or do whatever, you're getting this deeper part. Also, I've gone through a divorce, which led me to go to therapy. And my therapist, Anita, said, whatever you don't deal with will eventually deal with you. She said, I've researched you. I know who you are, but you will never show up on stage or in life until you deal with your mama issues. And what I recognize is I was showing up, but there was a hole, H-O-L-E, in my soul. And people were getting a part of me, not all of me. So that's that's kind of like the journey. This And this, I mean, this you detail out in total vulnerability in this book. Like I was... I, it's like, there's so many things I was reading through it. It's like, I, this is like, not just a book about igniting the power, a power of women. This is your heroic journey. You know, like you mentioned Simba before, like you are more than you became and what Simba had to go through. It seems like you had that same sort of epiphany as Simba did around like, who am I really? And, and it seems like that's really, it's igniting the power of Simon and related to women, and now you're bringing, you're filling in the blanks because your book didn't really talk about the mother part of it. You talked a lot about the divorce, but not about the mother part. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, one of the things that I discovered in going to therapy is that um, I needed. There's a lot of research out about fathers and daughters, but there's emerging research out about mothers and sons, and I needed to heal the relationships with the women in my life, starting with my mom, my daughter. Uh, the mother of my children, my ex, so that I can enter into another relationship, but not just from a personal standpoint, also from a business standpoint, recognizing some of the amazing women that I've worked with and where have I not really honored them for their brilliance and their intelligence? And what would it be like to engage intentionally um, in proper equity uh, to honor that, who do I become in the process? And that's what I'm really, that's what I'm recognizing. Like, oh my goodness, there it is right there. <laughs> There's so many things like that, that I related to is like this idea of wholeness. Like when, like, I don't really tell the true leaving my true leaving Disney story. I tell my leaving Disney story is it was like all about like, oh, I, you know, I want to have control. My kids were young. It's like my dad died. And it was like that big wake up call. And it was like, how am I living? And it was, I don't really tell the story all the time. I'll tell you though. Well, now everybody else, 
But um, when my dad, like, I mean, this will sound kind of gross, but like my, when my, we were at the funeral, my siblings and I decided like, well, you know, dad, since you're going on the other side, you know, put in a good word with us, you know, with the big guy over there. And, you know, my brother asked for something like, you know, I want a job. And my other sister asked for like a baby and my other sister asked for a boyfriend. And I'm like, I feel like a dotted line person and I want to become whole. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, when I, when I had that epiphany, like I just, I went back from the funeral and I'm like, I'm going to the land to happy, healthy and free. Like, I, you know, like, I don't know what it's going to take. And also like my love for consulting, the way that I was doing it. I love Disney. I loved all the projects I did. I was a part of that four to the basics that I know you probably talked about, you know, at the Disney Institute. And it was like, I just, I lost that love. And it's like, I started getting into counseling and you did landmark forum. I did something similar. It was called P3. And it's like this deconstruction thing, but you are so brave in a way that I've never been brave. Like I, I like, I write therapeutically to myself, but I don't write therapeutically in a public scenario. And this is a raw book. Like you just are like this, like, how did you get the courage to tell your story in such a powerful way? Because I've been hiding so long and I didn't like who I had become. My new wife, Jody, really encouraged me to to write the book and to get it out. Uh, and it took about three years for me to really go there. But the more I leaned into it, I said, I'm writing this for my children. Uh, if anything, I'm going to put it out there because I don't want them to live a life of hiding who they are. Now, let me just add a little balance to this because sometimes people like oh my god you just spam and you play the victim and you put it all out there i really try to do it in a healthy way from the standpoint of this is a guide Um, i'm not a licensed uh, expert or or counselor or anything and if there's something that i say i would encourage you to go and seek professional help i'm just sharing my story and just trying to come alongside of men to just kind of whisper in their ear to say you don't have to hide. If you really want to become who you need to be, get it right with the women in your life. So ignite the power of women. The title is kind of counterintuitive because women will read it before men and they'll give it to the, the man in the life and they'll say, you need to read this. And that we know, right? So so when I wrote it, I just said, you know what? I am, I'm in my 50s now, right? I'm staring 60 down the barrel. How... How dare I go to the grave and not leave just a little nugget of truth for the young men that are coming behind me? I didn't hear any bit of victim in this one. It feels like it was a big apology. I mean, just to be honest, like I read this as this was a big apology to your the mother of your children and to your to your kids more than it was a victim like oh look at me it feels it it reads more like a memoir to me with like actionable principles is that what your intention was it was totally totally i wanted to i wanted to get it right and even with the mother of my children we have been really great co-parents we've got a great relationship but if I didn't go through the process of going to therapy, I swear by therapy, because for years I'm like, I got to get together. I'm not going to talk to anybody on the sofa. Are you kidding me? Best decision ever, because I was blocking myself, right? And and so now my children, we've got a great relationship. We don't get it right all the time, but we're trying to put one foot in front of the other each day. And that's that's all one can do, right? 
How did your ex-wife, um, how did she respond when she read the book? Well, let's see. Besides radio silence, I could only tell from, from our kids uh, that there's healthy, it's a healthy understanding. And when we do talk, it's very cordial and very respectful and almost like now I understand you know, and, and that's it. And that's, that's okay. You know, that's, I don't mind uh, because I think for so long I was bitter and I was angry and I was absolutely pissed off. Right. Until I ran into a buddy of mine. I'll never forget the night I signed my divorce papers. I'm sitting at a restaurant. I ran into a buddy I hadn't seen in 20 years and he said, what's going on? And I said, Oh my goodness, I just went through a divorce. And he said to me, I was married for 39 years. And he said, I went through a divorce. And he said, whatever you do, pay your alimony and child support with joy. And I looked at him like he had four heads. I'm like, you pay with joy? Are you kidding me? He said, trust me, if you take the high road, you will come through this because you focus on the joy instead of the hate. And mm -hmm. it was like, it was just like a little God wink for me. Like I needed to hear that that moment. And then I went to therapy and started the journey. So, yeah, I I love that idea of like doing that because a lot of people have misconceptions. Like, obviously, I've been divorced more than once. Um, and the the whole idea is like, like all of this is for the kids anyway, you know, and there's there's a perspective on it. But I think that there's so much shame that goes along with, you know, being involved in a in a faith community. And then you go through this kind of thing. You know, you mentioned like it's like a God wink. But my experience in the church is like, well, being divorced was just definitely not, it was frowned upon, you know, and, and it's like, re, you know, like finding your faith in that kind of environment when it's almost like you were doing one of the big, you know, like deadly sins is getting divorced. How did you navigate this kind of transition with your faith? Well, first of all, I had to forgive myself. Let me start there. And then I had to believe that God had forgiven me. And then the faith community that I've been a part of for 25 years, they surrounded me and just said, we support you where you are and we don't judge you for what you've gone through. Life has happened. And now how do we pick up the pieces and find grace and mercy despite what has happened? And what I realized, I wanted to run away from the church because I've grown up in the church, been in church all my life. Like I know church, right? And I know how fickle church can be. And what I realized, I just had to continue to show up and believe that I was going to get over the shame and the embarrassment. Oh my God, you guys have been married for 25 years and you had the perfect life. Like what happened? What did you do? I had to get over that. And people were not looking at me, giving me the side eye as to what happened. They're like, if you need something, we're here for you. And That's awesome. That kind of helped me a lot. So you, so it wasn't just being in a faith community, you were in an unjudgmental judgmental faith community, yes. which is key. And it's hard to find all the times. Like you don't always know. That's not like, oh, okay, well, you know, they, it's not always adver adver as advertised, but it's like where you feel like you can lean into the grace feels like the right community that you could be in. Totally, totally. And I'm so, so how did your um, how did your clients respond to your vulnerability? Were I mean, in your other books, were you? I, I don't I don't experience that. It's like to the vulnerability as you know this one. Like, it, how did your clients respond? So some of like shocked, like, oh, didn't see that coming. You know, didn't know because there's this whole perception on the outside. To my very very close clients, I went to them directly and just told them so they heard it directly from me. And they said, you know what? We have a whole new level of respect for you. 
Um, there have been some clients who have been turned off. You know, they're like, the book is a bit too much. And I think, you know, everybody's wired differently. Like I wouldn't, in, in the African-American culture, there is an understanding where you don't put your business out in the streets. That's just something known, right? And when you put your business out in the streets, it's like, what? right? And I put my business out in the streets. <laughs> so, so we've had some people that um, have kind of put us on the uh, the block list. And, and, and that's okay because whoever's for you is for you. And what I've come to discover, there are people that come in your life and there are people that come through your life. And the people that come through your life, they were there for a reason and a season. But the people that come in your life, they accept your flaws. They accept your imperfections with no judgment. And, and those are the healthy relationships that we've discovered in this season. So that goes back to what you said about the research, about how companies right now, it's like the whole person type of thing. I think wholeness is a thematic thing of what we're trying to talk about here is the importance of being whole within yourself, but creating whole organizations. But the price of wholeness, there's a lot, there's, it's, it's a costly thing. I wish I would have, I wish I would have known when I started like my little heroic journey that it's like, it takes a long freaking time. And the the tools in the toolbox of becoming your authentic self is not like, oh, okay, I just want to be authentic and I'm just going to say these cool, funny things in my thing, you know, in my copy or whatever. It's like, no, it's, it's a lot of like undoing of all your false self and all of the undoing requires pain, which could create some shame, which is the opposite of how organizations like to function. We all like our masks and we like to keep those masks firmly in place. And here's you coming alongside saying, hey, let's take the mask down and let's all be whole. How, how is that message like resonating? Like even though the research says it's needed, how are the clients resonating with this whole idea? Like we should be whole, we should be ourselves and we should accept the pain that comes along with that journey of becoming ourselves. I have one big client who I've worked with over the last three years, and they have totally embraced this because it's who they are in their culture, their vision, their mission. It starts with their CEO, number one. Uh, number two, uh, they have been on a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging journey, and their eyes have become wide open to the diverse population that they have in their employee ranks. So they're kind of like, whoa. We've got to think differently. And then the third thing that we have seen is they're committed to it, not because it's flavor of the month and not because they've made a statement, but they've made a, made it a standard. Mm. Um, they're not doing it because of pressure. Uh, they realize it has to be a practice that leaders embrace every day every way. So I'm so honored that I've been able to work with them over three years. And, and they're a publicly traded company who's had financial impact to the positive, like their bottom line is up. So they have proven to themselves that this is the way to go. Uh, it's different. It's out there. It's not popular, but the companies that are embracing it, higher retention, better customer satisfaction, better results, because they realize that put your product aside, you're in the business of people. And if people don't feel the love, now love is not a word that's used in corporate circles. So we'll say care. If people don't feel cared for, they're out, they're gone. But when right. they're in an environment where they're cared for authentically 
not just because leadership went to a session and heard a consultant say, be nice to your people. No, that leader sees them. Um, Dr. Maria Music at University of Michigan says people need to be seen, valued, and understood. That happens leader to employee subculture. And when I'm seen, valued, and understood, you don't have to ask me to work harder. I'm going to do it automatically because I know you care about me. That's so interesting. I um, My birthday was uh, Wednesday. I just turned 55. Happy birthday. Thank you. And um, I just, I, for, I wanted to do something different for my birthday. So I went horseback riding and I hadn't done, I haven't been on a horse since I was in middle school, but it was interesting. There's so many leadership lessons from the barn, but one of the things that they talked about is how important it is that you like, you just, it's not like you, you have to groom the horse before you put the saddle on. So there's nothing there, but it's also part of that trust building where it's like, Hey, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. So I'm going to go do something for you. And that there's like this symbiotic trust relationship that has to happen with the horse, you know, where you have to trust, you have to be trust the trust, the, you have to trust the horse and the horse has to trust you that you know what you're doing. And there's this other whole thing. And it seems like that kind of symbiotic relationship where it's not like I'm above you leader and you're below me, but it's like we take care of each other as we get the work done. It sounds like that's your philosophy. And that seems to be what you've identified absolutely works with your clients. Totally. The days of command and control are gone. That dog will not hunt anymore. It's about a leader being in the center and how do I connect all the dots and everyone seeing me on the same level, eye to eye, heart to heart. So what are the practices that gets a group of leaders? Like, what do you do with a group of people where different levels of comfort with vulnerability, different levels of comfort with their emotions? How do you get groups of high ego executives and achievement oriented companies to get to a place where it's like, we could be vulnerable, we can be broken here, we can be okay. And then by the way, how are you applying it to all the faith communities and all the other stuff too? But that's a little sidebar. (laughs) So big question. So what I've discovered with executive groups, we always start with the data and the research because that speaks because, you know, they're very cognitive focused, you know, don't don't go into the soft, feely stuff. So we just start there. We just talk about here's the research. Let's talk about it globally. Let's talk about it domestically. Let's talk about how it's impacting the bottom line. Okay, number one. Then number two, we then start to talk about the future because they're future oriented and sharing organizations of the future, here's what they're doing. So you're sharing best practices. So I'll give you an example. Um, One of the things that I've learned from Dr. Jean Watson, who's a scholar out of the University of Colorado at Boulder and caring science is it's about being, belonging, becoming. So when we talk about belonging, a lot of conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, where a lot of organizations miss it They think that if they just advertise and show diverse people of color, now they're diverse. No, they're not because it's advertisement. It's not in your heart. You haven't owned it yet. And part of why executives don't own it is because they don't understand the business case of how diverse customers will help their business grow long-term. So you have to kind of come at it from here's how it benefits your bottom line and Oh, by the way, here's how you get there in your leadership and developing people and advancing people and activating people. So we kind of come at it from from a different angle, right? And then they're like, oh, that's what it's about. Yeah. And so then we talk about relationships, building trust, 
respect, listening, all those things that you and I have been talking about for years and we've heard it, but they're hearing it through a different lens to say, and this is how it benefits me. I'm perceived as a better leader, a better human being. So I love the fact that you have this good balance. Like you seem like a good balance between the right and left brain kind of person. You're integrated in that way. Um, one of the things, though, I remember just like when we were at Disney, and so we talked a lot about the the business case for diversity. And there's something about that that's like, okay, that's kind of compelling, but something about that kind of falls short. Like it's not, some of it's just about like doing the right thing and it's leading with values. Like how do you balance that data with something that's like more heart-centered? Like why wouldn't I like some of the stuff from the diversity, the, the the diversity business case, like, yeah, okay, but I don't feel like diversity, equity, and inclusion is all about the business case. It's all about social justice and doing the right thing because it's the right thing because everybody matters and everybody's voice matters. And we're it's not as interesting, you know, if we leave some people out. How do you bring that other part into it where it's like, okay, we're going to like, is it you just going to hook them that? Or how do you get the conviction level to say, like, I love Disney right now. Like, I'm obsessed with how Disney's handling some of the diversity challenges that it's facing right now. And it's like, yay, you're staying true to your values, no matter what the cost is. And it's pretty costly to Disney right now. You know, how do you get it here? Like, not here. How do you get the belief in, in the heart of your clients? Yeah. So one of the things that I do with leaders is I invite them to go back to the person that helped them become the leader that they are today. And I'll say, tell me about your first interaction with them. And they'll share a story of how the relationship was built. Okay. I said, okay, great. Hold on to that example. Then I will show a slide of Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald. What a lot of people don't know is that Ella Fitzgerald and Marilyn Monroe were best friends. And Ella shared with Marilyn that she wanted to perform at the Macumba Club back in the 1950s in L.A., but the club would not allow an oversized Black woman to perform in the club. So Marilyn contacted the manager and said, listen, if you will give her a contract to perform for a week, I will show up on opening night and bring two of my best friends with me to the event. And the manager said, okay, opening night. Ella Fitzgerald performs in this all-white club and there sat Marilyn Monroe with Frank Sinatra and Julie Garland because she understood her privilege, her access that Ella Fitzgerald did not have opened up a door. So when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and going back to the relationship, what would it be like to leverage your relationship to open a door for someone else who can do nothing for you but because it's the right thing to do, you will leverage your relationship equity to make it happen. So, so that's the that's the conversation. Now it begins to live in my heart because it's like, whoa, it's real. I'll give you another example. Just last week, I was at an event and Mel Robbins was speaking on stage. And I haven't seen Mel in about six years or so, but she did something for me six years ago where I did not have access. I didn't have a seat at the table. I did. I couldn't get in the room at all. And she was referred to me by someone else. We had a short conversation. She got to know me and she made one phone call, one phone call. The next thing I got a call and they said, we want you to come and be master of ceremonies for the Success Magazine event which is like the who's who uh, in LA. I went and I was the MC of the event. Somehow they captured it on video and a little snippet of that video went viral to the tune of 91 million views. 
Last week, I got a chance to tell Mel, thank you so much. You gave me a hand up, not a hand out. And she said, what did I do? I said, you made a phone call that you didn't have to make, but you did it because that's who you are. And she said, because I respect what you do. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. That's, she got it. She got that I have a relationship that you don't have access to. And I want to see you thrive just like me. And there's no competition. And it went beyond the pigmentation of my skin because she recognized the body of my work. I just didn't have access. And she used her access to make it happen. I think I figured out your superpower and how you do this. What? You're a business storyteller. So you're able to not just tell data. It's like, you know how to wrap the data around a story. So you know how to engage the heart and the head at the same time. That's what you do. You're a storyteller. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> I never thought of it so, that way. <laughs> yeah. So like this, like makes so much sense. It's like, and that's, and maybe that, like I'm picturing the guy back at the Disney Institute. It's not like Disney has a bunch of content. It has a bunch of stories. Disney's currency is story. And so then it's like, you come up like this book is all story. It's a memoir. It's not a, it's not a how to, you know, you do pepper in a lot of good stats. And I think you told a similar story. The the, the elephant Gerald story kind of rings in. I think it's in that the book as well. Um, but you tell stories and that's, that seems to be the, what cracks people open is like, okay, here's the data. So that's like, oh, okay. gets my mind activated. And then the tell the story, it gets the heart yes. activated. Absolutely. So, okay. So you start with the head, then you go into the heart, tell the heart story. So then you said, it's like, so the hands and feet do what they need to do. So where's the next step though? So use facts to get the head, use story to get to the heart. What happens next with the, the hands and the feet and get them to move? Great question. So facts tell, story sell. If I've sold the story, I then invite you, language is the software of the mind. I invite you to think about what's the next logical step that you can take. Because when you really understand leadership, whole person leadership, it's asking, not telling. Mm -hmm. Because the word education comes from the word educari. Educari means to draw out. So if I'm a smart human being, I don't want to be told what to do. I want to be invited to think about what I can do. So that's how you engage the hands because now, oh, I get to come up with the solution. Yeah. And oh, by the way, here are a few recommendations and suggestions, a few prompts for you to think about, but I'm going to invite you to think about what you can do. So it starts with the data to get the head. It tells the story to get the heart, and then it goes into the invitation to get the hands. Yes. And if you have the heart the head, the heart, and the hands, do the legs naturally come with it? Or is there something that comes with now, like now I'm going to move? Yeah. So this is a great question. So Harvard says that there are four styles of learner in any room. The one learner that needs the data, the other learner that says, why should I be listened to? What's your credibility? The third learner that says, give me three things that I need to do. And the fourth learner that's overwhelmed with a terabyte of information, just give me one thing to do. Knowing those different styles, if I want the feet to follow, I tee it up in different ways, inviting them to say, oh, I think I'll do this, or I'm going to do one, two, three. Oh, okay. I believe you now because of the different mindsets in the room. So it's, it's really creating and customized actions that will help people apply. 
But even yeah. in this just example, it seems like you do the same thing is it begins with you always start with a, a, a data fact or a quote, then you go into a story. Like it yeah. always, it seems like this is like your repeatable formula. This, I wonder if all your books are have that same kind of like thing where it's like, there's the data, then the story, then there's the, the um, invitation. And then there's the customized action based on your learning style. And you know why I do that? Because we're in a world right now where people don't believe you. People are overwhelmed with information and they look at you and it's like, okay, are you real? Are you true? Why should I believe you? So you have to give them a credible source that's not you that says, here's what this legitimate institution says. Don't believe me. Here's what this says. And then because facts tell and stories sell, everybody is wired to once upon a time. Then we start to pull down the defenses and we start to lean in, tell me more. And it's in the tell me more where now we're engaging the heart. So did you learn these, or do you do you naturally have these storytelling influence skills or is this part of the half a million that you invested in your content creation abilities? It's a part of the half a million that I've invested over the last 20 years. So what's been the best thing that you invested in to be able to be this type of thought leader and influencer? Best money I've ever spent was hiring Sam Horn to coach me who taught me the power of uh, giving a quote and finding the phrase that pays. Sam is, I probably referred a dozen people to her and, and disclaimer, I get nothing from this because she is so good. She taught me the ability of when you communicate, how do you communicate in sound bites with substance, get to the point, but transfer an image to the person's mind so that they can hook onto it. Best money I've ever spent. I think the other best money I've ever spent was going to the landmark forum. That was just a game changer for me. I it was like, what? I was just like, I was like, oh my goodness, because I had never experienced that before. But even now, um, I just went through a certification in caring science with healthcare professionals. I was the only non-healthcare person in this cohort for six months. Absolutely changed my life. Wow. Okay. So tell me. Um... I want to talk. I want to talk about this. The three things. So Sam Horn is the name. Yeah, Sam Horn. She's amazing. And Great. so, could you give an example of like what, like what it looks like to talk on a soundbite and make your your point memorable compared to like? Can you give like a before and after yeah. of what you might have communicated before to what you communicate now? Yeah. So, uh, my daughter came into my home office one day, and she said, "Hey, Daddy." I said, "Hey, baby girl." Uh, and I sensed she wanted to talk, but I was emotionally unavailable. Okay. And all right. So I just kind of told a quick story. Now, Sam would take that story and she would say, okay, so from to, how do you move people from to? So telling the story, I came back off the road and I said, Madison, you wanted to talk to me. And she said, daddy, it's not, a, it, you, you were busy. I said, I'm, I apologize and it's not okay. And her mother said to me, you give the best of you to everyone else, but you give us the rest of you. And I don't want the leftovers anymore. That's a Sam Horn type of best rest leftovers. Then you build on it, move from two. So after 25 years of being married, I built a house, but lost a home. I was chasing money, but had no meaning. I was pursuing power, but had no purpose. I was going after status, 
but had no satisfaction from two. So what you're doing, you're engaging the listener to say, oh, I relate. I get it. Very short, pithy to the point. So it sounds like what you're doing is, is that you're using poetry, not statements. You're using flow, not not just a bunch of facts and data. Like it's like you got you got some of that going. Like there's like a flow to this. Like there's a poetry element. Totally. And it's also slowing down to the speed of the moment. So I think one of the failures over the years for me is I had so much I wanted to get out. And I would say it so fast, so fast, because I'd tell you everything that's in my head. And what it does, it jams up the mind of the listener. So it's intentionally slowing down to just give just a little nugget. For instance, it's better to be in an environment where you're celebrated rather than tolerated. And just pause and just sit in that moment with that, then step into the next thing. And mm. yeah, so I've, I've had to learn how to be present in the moment. And I stopped giving speeches. I don't give speeches anymore. I have conversations with your soul. Because if I have a conversation with your soul, person to person, doesn't feel like a speech. It's a person who's pulled up a chair next to me just to talk to me one-to-one or one-to-many. And it it has taken me probably 20 years to get to that point to say, wait a minute, it's not about a speech. Even in some of the one-on-one coaching that I've done, what I realize is the healing is in the person sharing what they're going through. And I'm just the mirror reflecting back to them what they're saying and inviting them into the inquiry to discover the answer that's in them. One mm-hmm. of my one one of my mentors said to me, Simon, you come to me asking for the answer. I don't, I can't tell you what to do. I invite you to find the answer that's within you through QA. And when I just like begin to understand that, I'm like, oh my goodness, that's it. Because I always had a need to fill the space with hot air, even if what I was saying was not meaningful. And when I slow down to the speed of life, to the speed of moment, I recognize that the breakthrough is in between the sentences. That That's where the gold is. And so when I begin to understand, I was like, whoa, okay. So anyway. No, I love that. Like, I mean, this is reminding me of like when I was horseback and back riding the other day. It's like the horse can only understand one command at a time, you know, and you give need to give the horse enough time to process it. You have to be like 30 yards. You have to be looking 30 yards ahead and give the command then and give the horse time to process it. And I think that there's like some sort of analogy here where it's like if you want to guide an audience in a particular direction, it's like you could say one thing at a time and then give the audience enough time to process what you just said, you know, where it's like, okay, I was chasing, like you were saying, I was just chasing money, not, what was the thing that you said? Money, money, not meaning. And it's like, if you went on to the next one, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to sit with that. Where there are a lot of gems that you've been saying. And I said, Hey, wait a minute, can we go back to that? Because it's like, Oh, I can't process it fast enough. Cause now I'm thinking it's really interesting. It's like really embracing the power of the pause in that moment. Um, did landmark, like the landmark form, like help, you know, with you staying more grounded in the present or how, what was the impact of landmark form? I think the first thing is, you know, how, they and by te- the way, before you answer that, let's explain yeah. what landmark form is. Cause I think a lot of people don't know what landmark form is. 
So Landmark Forum, what I experience, it's a weekend where you go with complete strangers and there's a facilitator who leads you through a series of questions that invite you to explore things you've never explored before with strangers and you're writing and you're talking and you think that it's something that they do to you, they don't. It's you discovering you. And over a weekend from a Friday to a Monday, you will have a breakthrough like you can't even imagine. And it's not like it's the doing, it's in the becoming of landmark form. So that was the experience for me. I had a, a significant breakthrough. But one of the keys that I took away from landmark form is something has happened, but then you build a story around what's happened and the story becomes more powerful than what's happened. And I was like, shut the front door. Oh my goodness. That like, I was that guy, right? So being invited to reframe the story and and come back just to center and basics, just, just game changer for me. I did something similar and I, like this, I went through an organization called P3, which is, is, it sounds like it's the same. But what I really appreciated about that whole experience is that you understand there's this, the, the thing that happened to you and then there's the story, but the story actually protects you from the thing that happened to you. And if you want to heal from the thing that happened to you, you have to let go of the story. And it's like, as you take on the story, you have to let, you can resolve that. And then the story itself starts to resolve itself because you are dealing with the original the original thing that created the story in the first place, which is really hard work. Like you're very yeah. brave. You're very emotionally brave. Yes. In, it's taken in a every long which time way. Thank you. It's taking a long time to get here. <laughs> so there's Sam Horn. There's the Landmark Forum. What was the third thing that you said that was really transformative? I think uh, when I went through Caring Science. That's right. Uh, yeah. Caring Science really just opened me up to understand the four practices of forgiveness, surrender, gratitude, and compassion. And when I began to really get that, I was like, whoa, okay, I need to surrender because I tend to be a bit of a control freak, right? And I just had to learn how to surrender. And then forgiveness, oh, we could spend an hour talking about forgiveness, but just really not just saying I forgive, but I won't forget, then you really haven't forgiven, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then coming from a place of compassion, where I don't look past someone, but I look in honoring who they are as a human being and just acknowledging them, uh, I think is so critically important. Uh, and so those, those practices of forgiveness and practicing surrender and gratitude. So I just finished taking a certification uh, or a course from Dr. Martin Sligman at University of Pennsylvania on positive psychology. One of the huge epiphanies that I was like, whoa, that's so crazy. He said, what about every day writing down seven day challenge? What went well? Oh my goodness. Like go figure what went well coming from that place of gratitude game changer, because now you begin to look through the windshield of where you're going because of what went well, instead of the rear view mirror of where you've been. And mm. just, just that little tweak, right? Just really helped me immensely. That's really powerful. You know, so you've gone on this like major transformational journey. So you've already, you're, it seems like you're a reventer anyway. Like you've, you're a growth oriented person. You had many different jobs when you were at Disney. You left, you started your own business. You still have many different iterations. You're always going to continue to reiterate. But it seems like this particular 
transformation journey that you went on from the time you got divorced and what you capture in the book. What's different about this journey? And how are the lessons that you've had in this latest journey and all these new things that you're learning around self wholeness? How is that transforming this next iteration of your business and who you are? This is going to sound so crazy. So I have to tell a story. You knew that was coming. A friend invited me to go. Wait, a fact first. A fact fact or a quote. No, just kidding. Go ahead. Tell the story. (laughs) A friend invites me to go on a trip to Bhutan on a hiking trek with uh, the CEOs from around the world. And the first thing I said to myself, Black folk don't go hiking. Don't be asking me to go hiking. We we don't hike, okay? (laughs) There I find myself in the Himalayan mountains going up 10,000 feet altitude because we're going to spend the night, 25 people at a monastery. I've never been hiking before. I am losing breath. I'm thinking my heart's going to jump out of my chest. And I met myself on the mountain. Because all of these stories in my head turn around. What are you doing? This is crazy. And I wanted to turn around. And there's a guide with you on the hike. And I had a backpack that I had two laptops, any and everything that was uh, personal to me, because I'm going to take it up to the monastery because I don't know, you know. And he said, let me take, let me, let me carry your backpack for you. And he carried the backpack and I can only take a few steps before I was out of breath. And I said, how long is it going to take us to get to the monastery? And he said, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Two and a half hours later, just a little bit more, right? And I met myself on the mountain. I said, oh my goodness. Encouragement is oxygen for the soul. So where I am now in my journey, there are so many people that are hurting on this planet and they just need a little encouragement of just a little bit more. Mm. It's not this big thing you need to do. It's a little micro practice, just a little bit more. So, so now how I want to show up and what, where I'm going after this Bhutan experience and I eventually made it, it was just phenomenal, changed my life. I'm just going to come alongside people and hug people with my words and just give them just a little encouragement, just a little bit more. That's mm. all. That's all. Hug, so many- hug people with your words. That's another one you need to let pause for a second because that's really powerful. That's what people need. Words carry energy. So if I hug you with my words, with no strings attached, the words, whatever they mean to you, become healing presence for whatever you need. Mm. So what I've discovered in my journey over the last few years, I have five strengths that I'm going to lean into. My first strength is spirituality. My second strength is curiosity. My third strength is love of learning. Fourth strength is perspective. And the fifth one is social intelligence. Those are just, that's just my jam, right? So now I put it all together. Because 20 years ago, one of the first stages that I was on was with the late, great Dr. Stephen Covey. And he was the opening speaker. I was the closing speaker. And I sat there like a a, a young pup, like, oh my God, this is Dr. Covey. And he said something that I had never heard before. 
didn't originate with him. I think it originated with Wayne Dyer, but he said, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spirit beings having a human experience. And my eyes were as big as a deer staring at headlights. And I was like, spirit beings having a human experience. So net, net, I've come home to myself. I've mm-hmm. come home. I've come back home to who I've always been at the core. And now what I realize, it's not this big, big thing out there. It's just me loving who I am and meeting people where they are and saying, I love you. I see you. I'm going to hug you with my words. And there's no strings attached to that. Be who you need to become. And that's where the healing is right there. That's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. One one quick little story. Two weeks ago, I'm speaking in Nashville at an event. I finish. I'm on the step and repeat, taking pictures. Woman comes up to me. She said, I wasn't going to come down to hear your keynote. And I wanted to let you know that I came and I'm not going to commit suicide. The ground could have opened up, could have swallowed me up right there. I'm not going to commit suicide. Can I take a picture with you? I said, yes. I realized in that moment that if I didn't touch or reach any of the other 3,500 people that were there, I was there for her. Mm. That's all I got. Oh my gosh, it's so powerful. It feels like it's just you're you're in in your space, you're in your home, and it's not like you're chasing anything anymore. You're just being present and whatever comes, that's what happens next. But I'm sure you have some plans. Like we're so people want your book. Like, and what's next for your book? Like, so you said you're gonna take this one idea and you're gonna take it in many different ways because you're like you're not content curator, what your content container, content content distribution distribution machine. Like, (laughs) what's next for this book and how do people get it? So ignitethepowerofwomen.com is the website where they can go and get the book. We just created a six-week course that is personal on Ignite the Power of Women, where people can do self-paced individual, but we're also going to take it in the business. So there's Ignite the Power of Women in Business, because I really believe businesses have got to think about how do we ensure that not only there is there gender equity and pay equity, but there is respect for all people in an organization. So Ignite the Power of Women in Business, that six-week course, we just rolled that out. Really, really excited about that. And then as we move towards the future, uh, we're really going to look at daily encouragement. Mm. Daily encouragement, just a little inviting people and just a little micro step a little micro moment. Uh, Small is the new big. Small is the new big. People are in overwhelm. If if you tell me five things I need to do, just to need one thing, or I need somebody to listen, somebody to get me and and just be in that moment. And so go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, it's really about being before doing. So how do I become a better human being as I strive to do? And for me, for so long, now listen, everybody listen to me. The IRS hit me with a $500,000 
back tax issues. So I got like real stuff going on, right? And can I tell you, instead of filing for bankruptcy, I've like been paying that puppy. 500 grand, divorce, kids in college, cancer scare. Like mm -hmm. life has happened to me at 54. Life has happened. And I've chosen every single day to get up and just give a little bit more. That's it. That's it. That's all I got. Because every day on top of the ground is a choice to be here. And I choose to be here. That's so powerful. What are the chances are that you're going to write like a guided journal or something where you can take your principles and put them into practice where it's like you have a little bit of Simon nugget and then you can reflect on it and you know, and there's going to be, I could see it like with the questions, like, here's your principle, like, here's the data, here's the story. Now I have to reflect on it and I'm going to write on it. And like, what am I going to do in my life? What am I going to do? And then I have to go the next day and say, well, what were you grateful for the previous day? And like, when are you going to create that? And if you do create it, can I be in the intro? You know, <laughs> because you are <laughs> so priceless. So actually it's already written. Oh, um, and uh, I'll turn it. I'll send you a copy of it. It's called Brilliant Living, where we just break down 31 days and we just give you just a, a little nugget. But the new book that will be out uh, this fall is a parable that specifically does exactly what you just teed up. And uh, oh. we just sent the final draft off to the, uh, to the so design. Either, either I got into your head or it's like, oh, I thought I had a really cool idea. Darn. <laughs> <laughs> well, either way, I want it when it gets when it's published. So please send it to me. So um, we've talked about so many different things, and it was like such a heartfelt conversation. I am so grateful. Um, is there anything that you would want to tell me about just your your journey into becoming who you are now? Your journey as a business owner, as a not a speaker, but a content. Con like, why can't I forget? Remember the last word, content. I want to keep saying excavator. Creator, container, uh, content distribution. Content, why yeah, can't content I remember distribution. distribution? I don't know why I can't remember <laughs> that word. Content distribution person. Is there anything else that you would want to tell me about that, about your healing journey, about what it means to be whole and authentic as a leader, as an organization? And I'm just not asking you the right questions. So I could do that. And that would be very selfish of me. I think what I would really like to do is serve you in this moment. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the risk that you've taken to become who you are today. I want to say thank you on behalf of all of the listeners and viewers of this amazing experience that you've created um, because you are making a difference one show, one episode at a time. I want to say thank you for all that you have gone through and the setbacks that have become a set up for a comeback. And you are what I would call hashtag a hope pusher. What do I mean by that? Dr. Rick Snyder was a scholar at the University of Kansas. And for 30 years, his research was on hope theory. And one of the things that Dr. Snyder taught was willpower and way power when it comes to hope. What you've been able to do is you have given people the will and they have found a way. So I just want to say thank you for 
being who you are, that no matter where people are personally or in business, you have given them a lifeline. You have thrown them a life preserve. You have allowed them to identify the human algorithm within them and code themselves into a new tomorrow. So just thank you. Thank you for being who you are. You have helped so many. And if no one has ever said thank you, I want to say thank you on behalf of all your listeners. Well, on that note, <laughs> thank you for saying that. Um, wow, that was really powerful. Ah, so that's it for this episode of the Enough Already podcast. Um, I hope you hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. I know I have, so please forward it to your friends and colleagues. And I think that Simon would join me into the whole philosophy of the show is like hoping that people feel like they're enough already, which is why I named the podcast what it is. You know, it's like kind of like enough already for the things that hold us back and that we believe that we're already enough. So hopefully this episode has given you that experience of like just a little step into believing that you are enough already and you can do everything that you hope to do with your life and your career. So thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in. If today's episode lit a fire in you, please rate and review Enough Already on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. And if you're looking for your next step, visit me on my website at BetsyJordan.com and it's Betsy Jordan with a Y and you'll learn all about our end-to-end services that are custom designed to accelerate your success. Don't wait, start today.